0: So I want to begin this morning by reading to you some um, uh, historical predictions that I found this week. Historical predictions that are really, really bad. They are impressively bad. I'm going to read to you five of these, okay? The first one comes from Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson was the chairman of IBM in 1943. And in 1943 he said this, I think there will be a world market for a total of maybe five computers in the future. A world market for five computers. The next one's from Irving Fisher. Fisher was a professor of economics at Yale University in 1929. Smart guy, right? Said this, uh, stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. Probably seemed pretty right for a few years in 1929, didn't it? Stocks have reached what looks like a permanently high plateau. H.M. Warner from Warner Brothers, Um, 1927, he said this, no one wants to hear actors talk. Who would ever want to hear an actor talk? Maybe you agree with that, I don't know. Uh, DECA Recording Company, 1962. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. This is the reason they gave for rejecting the Beatles. And then one of my favorites, this is drillers, uh, whom Edwin Drake tried to enlist on his project to drill for oil in 1859. So he came to them and said, "We want to uh, come help me drill for oil. And their response was this, drill for oil? You mean drill into the ground and find oil? You are crazy. You'll never find oil there. Impressively bad predictions. I have a list of more, but that was just the, the top five that I picked out. And I think the most interesting thing about each of them is that um, each of those predictions all came from professionals, right, in their fields. These were experts in their respective fields. You had the chairman of IBM talking about computers. You had a professor of economics at Yale talking about the stock market. You had drillers talking about the location um, uh, and the opportunity to get oil. Of all the people who knew their situations the best... These are the ones that should have been the most accurate at envisioning the future. But instead, we get dramatic misses. And I share those with you this morning just to say this. As human beings, we really should walk with humility in terms of what we think we know now and how well we think we can see ahead of us. As human beings, we should walk with humility in terms of uh, what we think we know right now and how well we believe we, should see, we can see ahead of us. Let me give you an example from my own life. I, I grew up Catholic, Roman Catholic. Um, I mean, see, uh, not nominally uh, that way either. Um, I didn't go to a Protestant church, wasn't really allowed to go to a Protestant church until much later in life. In early high school, I went to a Baptist church with some friends. And I was sitting in the pews, and I was listening uh, to a guy do something I'd never really seen before. He was preaching, and it was a guy named Brother Glenn. Brother Glenn was a very skilled, very engaging preacher, a great man. And I remember sitting in the back trying to sort of avoid eye contact with him and sort of really feeling very uncomfortable and thinking to myself, I would never in a million years do what he's doing. I mean, look, think about this. He has to stand up in front of people every week. One One of my greatest fears Risk embarrassment every week. And number two, he has to think of something new to say every week. These are the same people, and he has to tell them something new every week. Of all the things, I promise I will never do that. Anyway, here we are. (laughs) Joke's on you, I guess. (laughs) As As human beings, we should walk in humility in terms of what we know and how far we think we can see ahead of us. All of which really applies this morning to our discussion on wisdom. I'll show you how in just a moment, but let me begin with just a quick review, if you weren't able to be with us last week, or even if you were and you remember about 8% of it, let me just review what we went over last week for a moment. Um, Last week, we began our study of the book of Proverbs by reading chapter 8 together. And there in chapter 8, we found a poem in which wisdom is personified as a lady, and we saw that, that lady wisdom is someone who calls out to us. She is someone who um, invites us into a devoted relationship with her. And we move forward and we said it, it would be a big win for us last week if we could leave with a fairly clear definition of wisdom. And so we said that wisdom, as it comes to us in the Proverbs, is skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is both a skill and an art. Wisdom is a skill because it involves the actual doing of something. It is practicing. It involves getting better at something the more that you do it. And wisdom is an art because there is no one set of rules that tells us as as human beings what to do in every particular situation. We said much of life happens between the cracks, between the cracks and the rules. And it's there in these spaces, the spaces that aren't quite spelled out for us uh, as clearly as we would like. It's there in these spaces that we have to evaluate that we have to improvise, that we have to prayerfully consider how the circumstances, both uh, the circumstances outside of us and the circumstances about who we are as people dictate wisdom's next move. Wisdom is skill in the art of godly living. We concluded last week by um, saying that wisdom is inherently relational. Wisdom is inherently relational. We see that throughout the Proverbs, that wisdom is gained in the company of wise counselors. Wisdom is gained when we're with we put ourselves um, in relationships with wise counselors. And the ultimate relationship we saw last week. The ultimate relationship in which we find wisdom is a romance with the God of the universe, a romance with Jesus Christ, who the Apostle Paul said is wisdom in the flesh. This morning, we're going to continue with our overview of Proverbs by looking at the book's prologue this morning, very short passage, chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We're going to find as we look at the prologue this morning, that our humility before God, our humility as creatures in terms of what we know and how far we think we can see ahead of us, um, this is at the foundation of wisdom in all areas of our lives, submitting ourselves instead to the one who does know. Submitting ourselves instead to the one who really can see ahead of us is the foundation of wisdom. It's where real wisdom begins. Let's read this morning, uh, this short opening section, uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. The book begins this way. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, in justice, and in equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Let me read that last part again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Okay, three things from our study this morning. It's a little bit like last week. We are still in the orientation phase of our study, and all that means is we're trying to give you a general outlook on the book as a whole so that you can engage it yourself. Later on, we'll get to very specific proverbs about subjects that are extremely practical for our lives, but um, right now we are orienting ourselves to the book as a whole. So this feels a little bit general this morning. Here's what I want you to see. Three things. Wisdom's foundation, number one. The foundation of wisdom. Number two, I want you to see wisdom's yield. Wisdom's yield. And number three, wisdom's recovery. Number one, where does wisdom come from? Number two, what does it produce in us? And number three, how is it that we begin to recover wisdom once we've lost it? Wisdom's foundation, wisdom's yield, and wisdom's recovery. I'll take those in order. First, wisdom's foundation. Virtually all commentators agree that the first seven verses of Proverbs, the first seven verses here, function as an introduction to the book as a whole, as the book's prologue. And virtually, there's, uh, there's um, uh, consensus here as well, virtually all commentators agree that verse 7 is the climax of the prologue. That is to say, in verse 7, we have the chief underlying principle of everything in the book that follows. And it's in verse 7 that we read twice this morning, we'll read it again. The fear of the Lord, the writer says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now it's important to say that knowledge here does not mean sort of mere intellectual calculation. Knowledge here is one of those many synonyms that we talked about last week that come to us from the book that is a synonym for wisdom. So we can say it like this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, that's how the Proverbs put it in Proverbs 9.10. It's exactly what Psalm 111 says as well. The beginning, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, let's think about that just for a moment, okay? What sense is the fear, of the, the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? How is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Well, in this sense, the fear of the Lord is always the primary attitude from which all real wisdom emerges. The fear of the Lord is always the primary attitude from which all real wisdom emerges. In other words, the fear of the Lord is not just the first step. It's not the beginning in that sense. It's not just the first step to being wise that you master and then you sort of jettison once you're done with it. The fear of the Lord underlies wisdom in all of its applications. One commentator puts it like this, What notes are to music, what numbers are to math, what letters are to reading, this is what the fear of the Lord is to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the first principle. It is the foundation of all wisdom. Okay, so what does it mean? What does it mean when we use that phrase, the fear of the Lord? Perhaps you've encountered that phrase before as you've read the Bible or you've heard it around uh, um, uh, in a religious context. In scripture, the fear of the Lord is used over 30 times. It is a recurring phrase that's extremely important. And as it recurs, especially in the Old Testament, and especially in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the phrase, the fear of the Lord, refers to an attitude of deep reverence and awe in our relationship with God. An attitude of deep reverence and awe in our relationship with God. It is awe-inducing respect. From us as creatures towards God as our creator. Let me try to illustrate it like this, because words aren't enough. (laughs) Let me say it like this Imagine a father and his young son. Some of you, this is very close to home. So imagine a father and his young son. Uh, The father, this is an ideal relationship. The father loves his son. The son, in return, loves his father. What do they do together? They play together, they laugh together sort of work through life together. The father and the son enjoy one another immensely. But in all their, in all their laughter, in all their joy, in all their happiness, and all their work, all of that is still marked, their relationship is still marked by a pervasive uh, seriousness in regards to how they relate to one another. That is to say this, the father is serious even in his playfulness, even in his laughter about caring for his son. And the son is serious even in his playfulness, even in his joy, even in his laughter, about respecting the strength and the authority of his father. It would not be too much to say in the biblical sense that this young son is a son who fears his father in the right way. Now let me say this, he's not terrified of him. The young son never worries that his father will abandon him or harm him or do anything else but love him. But he does take him seriously. He listens to his words. The young son considers his character. He feels the weight of his presence when he's around him. In all things, the young son never takes the reality of his father lightly, as if the father had a small role to play in his life. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take that. Take that father-son dynamic, that ideal dynamic, and combine it with the overwhelming sense of majesty you get, say, when you're driving out west and you see the Rocky Mountains uh, um, rise out of the plains, almost out of, you know, into the, into the air. <laughs> when you drive out west and you see the Grand Canyon open up, unearthed into the ground, or when you're out somewhere away from the city on a, on a, on a dark night, on a cloudless night, and you look up and you see the stars, I want you to, I want you to combine that sense <laughs> Some other uh, picture you get with the majesty of something that makes you feel small and helpless. Combine, for example, the authority of a father with the majesty of something that makes you feel small and helpless, and you get—you begin to approximate, I think, what the Bible means by the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is respect. It is awe. It is love. It is trust all rolled into one. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13 says this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord? And then it explains what that is. <laughs> to walk in his ways. To love him. To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to observe all the Lord's commands and decrees. Fearing the Lord is walking in his ways. It is loving him. It is serving him. It is taking him seriously enough to obey him in all things. Let me just put it to you very simply. In the Bible, the phrase the fear of the Lord is a stock image for a true follower of God. It is a stock image for someone who follows God. And the the book of Proverbs says that this is, for you men, the very first principle of wisdom. You must be a follower of God. Now let's talk about this in practice for just a moment. What does that practically have to do with wisdom in terms of managing your affairs and living your daily lives? Well, I want you to think about it with me. I mean, it means this generally, that the primary motivation behind what you choose to do this morning or during your week, the primary motivation behind um, how you choose to live, how you choose to apply yourself in your relationships, in your business, is honoring God. The primary motivation for your life is honoring Him. In order to be wise, the fear of the Lord should be your basic orientation to life. It should dictate how you conduct all of your affairs. Now, I think that's fairly easy to get, (laughs) at least in principle. Now, here's the hard part. Proverbs 1-7 is also an indictment. Listen to me. It is an indictment on the two things that most often become our de facto orientations to life. It is an indictment against self-love, Self-preservation, self-centeredness on one hand. And on the other hand, trying to keep up with or please everyone else around you. Did you hear me say that? Look, the Proverbs are going to get at this repeatedly in different ways. They're going to say, what will destroy you? What will unmake you as someone who has the capacity to live well will either be your own arrogance or it will be your inability to say no to others. Because you are addicted to what they think about you. A fool, the proverb says, is oriented by pride. Or a fool is oriented to just going along with the crowd. Because, hey, everyone else is doing it. <laughs> a wise man fears the Lord. A wise man's life and his affairs are consistent with a deep reverence for God. All of Proverbs will proceed from this foundation. Let me say one more thing uh, this morning by way of application to this. If the fear of the Lord is the true fountain of wisdom, and if we agree on that, if the, tr- if the fear of the Lord is the true foundation of wisdom, then everyone you meet today who is searching for wisdom in some place in their life, who are they really searching for? They're searching for God. Everyone that you meet today, they don't know it, right? <laughs> but every opportunity you have to point someone to wisdom is also an opportunity to point someone to the Lord. Now, use wisdom in how you apply that, but it would be strange, listen to me, it would be strange if, in dispensing wisdom, as someone who um, is known as someone who is wise, it would be strange in dispensing wisdom if you never ever got around to telling someone else about the God who is the fountain of all of it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, it is the foundation of what it means to live well, to live wisely. Second, this morning, let's consider wisdom's yield. Okay, what does wisdom produce? The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the fountain of wisdom, but what does it produce? Um, another way to say it might be this, I struggle with how to say this. How does it, um, uh, what kind of outlook does it, uh, does it cause in our lives? How does it uh, cause us to engage the world around us? And since verse 1 uh, directs us to look at the Proverbs of Solomon, I want us to do that for a moment to get a sense of how the book does what it says it's going to do, which is to give uh, prudence to the simple, um, uh, uh, wisdom to, um, uh, excuse me, understanding to the wise. So let's read three representative Proverbs this morning. And you don't have them on your sheet, but we'll read them out loud and you'll get them. So um, turn to Proverbs 10 if you have a Bible with you. This is where the Proverbs of Solomon begin. Proverbs 10. We're going to look at three verses this morning briefly. Proverbs 10.4, Proverbs 10.9, and Proverbs 10.27. I'll give you a minute to get there. The Proverbs of Solomon. All right, I'm going to start with 10.4. says this. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Simple enough. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. That's a proverb. Proverbs 10.9 says this. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Okay? In Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be cut short. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, excuse me, but the years of the wicked will be short. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think for a moment about what all those Proverbs have in common. Okay? Here's what they don't have in common. Their subjects are are utterly different, right? I mean, the first one, you get work and integrity. The second one, excuse me, work and wealth. The second one, you get integrity and security. And the third one, you get wisdom about the fear of the Lord and a longer life. that connects those two. I did that on purpose. What I want you to see is that the, the Proverbs in terms of the subjects are different. The basic pattern is the same. And here it is. Every one of the Proverbs we just read directs your attention towards the future consequences of your present actions. That seems very simple, right? Every one of the Proverbs we just read directs your attention towards the future consequences of your present actions. Because here's what wisdom assumes. Wisdom assumes that you will care about the consequences of your choices. Wisdom produces in us an outlook. It yields in us an outlook that has an eye towards the future. So, for example, Proverbs 10.4 assumes this, that you would read it and say, you know what, I think I would rather be wealthy than poor. Like, I think, I'd rather, I, think I want to give that a shot. You know, that's a better, uh, a better situation. Well, in order to do that, I should work diligently in the present rather than slack off. You see that? It's consequence in forming action. Proverbs 10.9 says, look, I don't, you know, maybe I don't want to live in the future um, with anxiety about being found out. What's the best way to live in the present? Well, honestly. <laughs> if I don't want to live with anxiety about being found out, maybe I shouldn't do anything that would, um, that, would, that would hurt me if it were found out. I should live honestly. That is a consequence in forming a present action. Proverbs 10.27, I would rather live long than die young. That's a little bit of a no-brainer, I think, for most people. I would rather live long, uh, uh, yeah, than die young. So in the present, I should live in the fear of the Lord right now. Look, here's what I want you to see. It's simple, but it's important. Wisdom assumes that you care about the consequences of your choices, and it uses that care. It uses that care in your life to shape your decisions in the present. What the entire book does is it invites you to peer into the future and to see how your life, will most likely turn out if you make certain choices right now. You know, who wouldn't want to know a little bit more about what their life might look like? The Proverbs does that for you. It says this is most likely, probably, generally, how your life will look if you make certain choices right now. Wisdom yields an orientation towards the consequences of our actions. Now, having said that, uh, let, me, uh, let me issue two extremely important caveats this morning. The first, um, maybe the most important thing I say all morning, okay? The first is this that the Proverbs are directed towards consequences. Hear me say this. They are not promises. Though the Proverbs are directed towards consequences, they are not promises. The Proverbs are generalizations about life, they are not promises. How do we know? We'll read Job sometime. Read Job sometime. You know, sometimes the righteous do suffer through no fault of their own. Yes, it's true. Generally, a man who works hard will grow wealthier than a man who is slack, but not always. Yes, it's generally true that someone who lives in the fear of the Lord and stays away from destructive and immoral behavior will live longer. But, friends, you know this not always. There is room in the will of God for the unexpected and the unexplained. And in many ways, that's what the rest of the wisdom books are about, like Ecclesiastes and Job. And it's why the book of Proverbs is not a standalone read, it is part of a larger canon of wisdom so that you and I do not confuse generalizations with divine guarantees. The Proverbs direct us towards consequences. But they are not promises. Second, the fear of the Lord, as you read the Proverbs, the fear of the Lord must ground us in our approach to both the present and to the future. The fear of the Lord must ground us in our approach to both the present and to the future. There are two basic mistakes we can make here when it comes to wisdom. The first mistake is one that the Proverbs obviously addresses it's the attitude that says, you know what, live for today, live for today. You only live once. Don't think about tomorrow. And, you know, that would be, like, awesome advice if, like, days were totally unrelated to each other, right? I mean, it it really would. If you lived in the movie Groundhog Day, for example, and you got up and it was a new day, you could literally live for today. But what the Proverbs is telling you is that tomorrow actually has a claim on today. Tomorrow has a claim on today. And what you do today has consequences for tomorrow that you have to pay attention to, or you'll kill yourself. You'll destroy yourself. Uh, The first mistake is to say live for today. The other mistake is the one that the Proverbs implicitly addresses when it makes the fear of the Lord the foundation of wisdom. So if the first mistake is to say live for today, the second mistake says live for tomorrow. Live for tomorrow. Worry about what tomorrow might bring. Spend your days right now fearing the unknown, stressing about the future, Live in anxiety right now about what might happen to you, all the possibilities of what might happen to you down the road. Listen to me, this is extremely important. Wisdom says this, you can neither entrust yourself to the present, nor can you entrust yourself to the future. Wisdom says that you must entrust yourself to the Lord, to the one who is ultimately sovereign over all your todays and all your tomorrows. Wisdom says that it is actually possible in your life this morning to consider tomorrow without becoming anxious about it. But only if you become the sort of man who entrusts himself to the Lord, while at the same time measuring well, as best as you can, the consequences of your choices. Well, there's always before us the reality that we haven't done that well, right? Um, There's always before us the reality that we have not always measured well, that the consequences of our choices have not always been uh, consequences that we've wanted to live with. It is true for every man in the room this morning that we have not always feared the Lord as we should. It is true for every man in the room this morning that we have not always been skilled in the art of godly living as wisdom dictates. There is before us the reality, the reality that we have all lived as fools. (laughs) And many of us, you know, that's probably the wrong way to say it, most of us, all of us, still bear the wounds and consequences in some ways of our foolishness. So what do we do then? How do we move forward? We read the proverbs, and what we find is we're 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 basically a mixed bag of people who have done well and done poorly. Right? You read the proverbs and say, "Look, I can't. I'm not a man who's always been uh, diligent at work. I'm a mixed bag." What do you do when you read the proverbs and you find that you're both at once? Right? There's some wisdom. There's some foolishness. How do you move forward? Uh, Another way of saying is this: We just talked about consequences. Is it true? Is it true then that our consequences, our decisions in the past. Define us forever. If you're a Christian here this morning, then the answer is absolutely not. Though we live with the consequences of our decisions, both good and bad, there is a promise for those in Christ that is more than a generalization. That is more than a proverb. Here's the promise as it comes down to us from the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. He says this, All things work together for good for those who love him. What the Apostle Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is that at the end of all of our wisdom and at the end of all of our foolishness, at the end of all those things, of all of our decisions, of all of our consequences, is the grace of God ready to finish our stories and to recover us from the prison of our own consequences. It is not only true that in Christ, God saves us from our sin. It is also true that in Christ, God actually saves us from the consequences of our foolishness. There's a great picture of this um, in Ontario, Canada. I read about this a couple weeks ago. Um, in Ontario, Canada, there's a riverside park that is landscaped with sculptures by the river. Um, uh, very nice sculptures, intricate sculptures. One of the sculptures is a dinosaur. One of the sculptures is a man riding his bike. I mean, there is a, a child and his mother. But there's something even more to the scene. Each sculpture, if you look closely, is actually made with garbage. And the sculptures are all made from the debris that is collected at the bottom of the riverbed. So what they do in this park is every uh, year the city drains the river by a system of channel locks. And the city invites um, the whole community to come out. The whole community comes out and scours the river's muddy bottom to clean up the garbage that has been scattered around it. So you, know, you got urinals, you know, and uh, wine bottles, and shoes, um, uh, grocery carts, baby buggies, all kinds of things. Mountains and mountains of algae-covered garbage is hauled out of the river. And instead, then, of taking it, taking all that garbage to a landfill, uh, fill, the community, the, uh, the leaders of the community call together their best sculptors, and they, they have a contest. And they see then who can uh, do the best job of, of molding that mound of junk into something to make it beautiful. And this is what they do they work with the garbage until their new creations are ready to be showcased along the very river from which the raw materials have come. So a transformation takes place. The garbage goes from things unwanted now to things enshrined, from things scorned to things treasured. It's a great picture of the gospel. This is uh, what the Bible tells us God does with us, with every single part of us. Proverbs is a part of a larger story, men. What God does for us is he takes the glorious ruins of our hearts and our hands. He takes the tedium of every bit of our lives, even the poor decisions that you have made, and he forms it all into beauty. And listen to me, I'm sure that many of you can think this morning of some, uh, some mistake that you've made in your life. some some act of foolishness that you've made in your life, that as you look back now, you look back on it now, you can actually see the hand of God not only delivering you from it, but even more, actually using your lapse of wisdom for your good and his glory. Do do y'all have times in your life when you can see that? And if where you sit this morning and you can't see it, for those of you who can't imagine that kind of transformation taking place in your life, And let me urge you to look at the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul Goebbels said it so well from the pulpit this past Sunday. He said that the cross is the climax or was the climax of Jesus' life and work. The cross is what Jesus came to do. He came to die in humiliation at the hands of unjust men. And according to the Apostle Paul, his death stands as foolishness to the ordinary course of wisdom in this world. And yet what does God do? God turns it into something beautiful. He turns it into something good. He turns it into something glorious. He he turns an instrument of failure and death into a piece of jewelry (laughs) that people now wear around their necks. Not only that, he centers it, uh, um, he, he makes it the center of his kingdom for all eternity. And if he can do that with the cross, with an instrument of failure and death, then imagine what he can do for every part of your life, even your past folly. Paul says, all things work together for good for those who love him. And all things means all things. Even your foolishness. At the end of all of our wisdom, at the end of all of our mistakes, is the grace of God given to those who fear him. The, the message of Proverbs is to entrust yourself to him. That's the first message. Entrust yourself to him. That's the beginning of wisdom. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, thank you for our time this morning. We do pray that you would You would make much of it, that you would use our time in our discussion groups now to talk about some of the things that we've heard from your word, and that you would give us your spirit to that end, and that you would help us to entrust ourselves to you, O Lord, to connect you, honoring you, um, to the daily uh, circumstances, um, affairs in which we live. Lord, we pray that you would do this from your own grace, the fullness of your grace. In Christ's name, amen. Um, one, one note this morning, um, if your group normally goes to 302 and 304, so that's the third floor um, at the very back edge of the hall, the, the, the southern end of the building, if you could stay in here this morning, they have a meeting in there eight, at 830 right after us, it's going to be hard to turn around, so if you could stay in here and discuss at your tables, that would be great. Thank you.